Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. How you doing? And today we're happy to be interviewing one of the key founders of the modern private reptile industry, Mr. Tom Crutchfield. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So, uh, do you mind telling us how you first got into uh, reptiles and keeping them and the whole hobby as a whole? That's a, that's a really good question because I can't remember a time when I actually didn't really love reptiles and have an interest in them. I remember my earliest recollection of reptiles other than seeing them in books and seeing wild turtles sometimes was turning over a rock in my yard and finding a ringneck snake. And I remember just staring at it. I couldn't believe it, actually. And uh, I started keeping them in jars, which my parents didn't want me to do. And I thought they, they might eat cheese. And so from very meager beginnings, and then it just sort of progressed, and I never grew out of it, I guess. Uh, I've always loved the reptiles. Cool. Oh, so what, so what kind of give us a... Um... Kind of just give the listeners maybe a brief breakdown of, uh, well, just everything you've done and what you're currently doing. Oh, God. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I, uh, I, I have a lot of field experience with reptiles, particularly in the early years and in later years in foreign countries. Uh, my first love was wild snakes because that's all there was, like in the 1950s and 60s. I was born in the late 1940s. So, growing up, th- th- there was no information. Everybody hated snakes. And I mean, it's the same people think today, but it's not even close to the same. Uh, everybody did. They despised them. So, you had many no friends that you could share your interest or hobby with because there was nobody. So, a lot of the, the reason a lot of us older guys all know each other, famous herpetologists, it's because we sort of found each other in some way early on, and most of us have known each other for like 40 years. And I gravitated from that and went to school, uh, graduated from high school, uh, moved to South Florida near the Everglades, uh, got married in the process. I worked at the Snakeatorium uh, for Ross Allen at the Reptile Institute back when it was in existence. You know, I had all the job. I mean, I, I worked with Tommy Yarborough up in Alabama at the Snake Ranch, and he had... Uh, he had big mammals too, like leopards and mountain lions and uh, big primates, baboons and macaques and uh, bears. He had a big Himalayan bear named Rachel that kind of beat me up one time a little bit, but I deserved that. Uh, so it was an adventure. My whole life has been, still is. And so I then I went to work for environmental education for a while for the Lee County School Board, and then. Went from there, but started my own business, you know, just buying and selling reptiles because nobody at that point bred reptiles. And what really, I think, began to make me famous was I I made my first trip around the world when probably, I think it was 1982 or 83. Uh, I was still a reasonable, I wanted to, to do it by the time I was 30, but I was actually, I think, 31 or 32. Uh, and over time, I, I've traveled to six of the seven continents. The only one I haven't been to is Antarctica for obvious reasons <laughs> I love penguins but I don't want to go there I have to, and I've seen penguins other places I don't have to go there to see penguins I can see penguins in places that have reptiles uh, so anyway uh, 
then I got in trouble with the feds uh, over Fiji iguanas, among other things. Not just me, but a lot of people in the U.S. And I left to Belize and just left, literally, and then came back. The illegal mass, I got sentenced to prison for uh, buying Madagascan tree boas. No, I'm sorry. They dropped that. Uh, receiving fly river turtles that the carapace was less than four inches in length. They were four inches in length if you measure over the shell like you're supposed to, straight line, they were borderline. So that, but anyway, I was just done fighting it. So I just went ahead and did what was done. Uh, uh, I had got myself in real good shape over the years. I was always in pretty good shape anyway. And I became a personal trainer with a private collection and just sort of accidentally got back into it. And, uh, I'm retired at the farm. My daughter and my wife do pretty much everything. So, um, and learn a lot of new cool stuff. Cool. <clears throat> so, you mainly got into it because basically no one else was doing it, like breeding and, and selling. No, them. I got into it because I love doing it. Ah, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Make no mistake. <laughs> I mean, uh, I've, I've loved reptiles since I was, can, can remember, I said that already at the beginning. Literally, I remember at five years old having the, my first snake. Uh, my entire life has been spent with reptiles. What, what I had to watch a crocodile farm eating. That's really cool. What, what, what specifically got you into like actually like breeding and selling them as opposed to just like you know just keeping them yourself? Well, looking for a way to make a career in, in with reptiles and and back in the time I'm starting those reptile businesses about in the 1970s. And if you were a wildlife biologist in the 1970s, nobody gave a flying crap. I mean, you'd be lucky to make, you know, you didn't make much money and there was not a lot of opportunities. And uh, I, 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 when, I, I, when I got out of high school, I got married finally, I think I was 22, uh, to uh, uh, Penny, who was the mother of all my kids. And, uh, and she's, we're still really close friends, but we were married like 36 years. But anyway, uh, uh, I decided to go back to college. I had a pretty good job at Sears Roebuck and Company, and and I was breeding reptiles on the on the side at that point. But but common stuff like Burmese pythons and and Indian pythons. I, I was breeding Indian pythons then. I know that they're rare today, but at that time, Indian pythons were more common than Burmese pythons in herpetoculture, just the small amount of herpetoculture that existed. Because remember, at this point, it's just starting to get interesting. And really what set the whole thing off was prior to me taking my first trip around the world, I bought three imported albino Burmese pythons that Alfred Ojeda imported. And they were $7,000 each. And I had enough extra cash to float half of it. And I took a second mortgage on the, hat, on the house for the, on my house for the, for the balance. And it was, uh, I have no regrets. Uh, he, uh, I uh, made a deal with Bob Clark when he first came, when he found out that I had gotten them, and of course I went to see Dang too. That's who they came from, the famous Mr. Dang. I think I sent you guys pics of me pushing him in a wheelchair the last time I was in Thailand. Uh, he uh, he was responsible for all of those, all of the albino cobras in the U.S. <clears throat> the first albino water monitors I got from Dang. I could just go on and on and on. Uh, but they short-lived because Thailand stopped the uh, import uh, or export of reptiles about 1985. 
and uh, he was a bird dealer also, and he did a lot of bird stuff. And later on, I think he was an arms dealer too. But I, I can't. I, I'm not 100 percent sure. That's out of my realm of understanding, sort of. But anyway, that was what what changed herpetoculture and probably made like a huge amount of recognition for me was procuring the albino pythons. And I was already known for procuring those animals that were hard to find because I was going to actually collecting them. And back in the 70s and even the early 80s, CITES, while it existed, it really wasn't enforced and nobody really cared. It really wasn't until Atlanta Wildlife Exchange hit the U.S., in 1981 or 82, that got all changed. But before well, that, you could just go and get whatever you wanted, and even if you declared it, nobody cared. Hmm. You know what I mean? They just yeah. didn't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that that's, really where all, that's where all the rhino iguanas came from. I mean, you could go to Haiti and just, you know, uh, if, if you knew where the rhinos were, go and pay the people to catch them for you and get and spend a nice, like, long weekend in, in Port-au-Prince and send the guys out to the Atibaniti and have them, you know, collect a dozen rhinos for you and bring them back and have somebody build a box and ship them back with your luggage and nobody cared. Hmm. What do you think? What do you think? We could, we could have done the same with the Bahamian iguanas too. Have you noticed how there's none of those in the in the pet trade much? You yeah, know yeah I've never seen them before. In because the pet trade. we knew all, there was about five or six of us that was collecting the iguana, the cyclora mostly. And we knew the rhinos were really common. The only other cyclora I ever brought into the U.S. other than Cornuta that I went and caught was cyclora carinata from Turks and Caicos. But that actually is the most common one of all. There was like, I saw an Amberger's keep probably 2,000 of them at one time on this big field and just iguana heads everywhere out of burrows and stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, I couldn't even believe what I was seeing. And, uh, but, but, but none of us, uh, of the old guys, that was, uh, I don't want to call names, but I can think four or five people right off the top of my head. Uh, even Louis Porsche used to travel the Caribbean and collect West Indian boas and all that kind of stuff like me and everybody else. But we never took the Bahamian iguanas because they occurred on these little keys, and we weren't sure what impact we would make because it really was never about money. What I wanted to do was to go someplace, get something really cool, bring them back, and sell part of them, pay for my trip, and be able to afford to keep some of the stuff I caught. And what I think you, that was a lot of us at the beginning. Yeah. What do you think changed um, in the reptile industry from what it was like then with, you know, with what, how you were describing it to now, and, and do you think it's more beneficial to like what it is well, now? Well, basically, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Here's how I see it. Back then, the average person who was interested in reptiles compared to the average person interested in reptiles today, the amount that they know about reptiles 30 or 40 years ago would be probably 10 to 20 times as much as anyone today on average, only because, remember, the public perception of reptiles, there was no information you could get or anything like that. So if you messed around with reptiles for a long time, you had to love them in some way. You know what I mean? I mean, there was no, there wasn't even a big market in captive reptiles. I mean, People didn't want to buy cobras and shit back then. They wanted to avoid that stuff, you know? I mean, there wasn't even private collectors back then like now. It wasn't the same. But the average person who was really into it, like myself and a few others, some of, a lot of them are pretty famous herpetologists today in their own right, and 
we had a passion more for the animals than it wasn't for the money. I, I know for myself, I can say it was it was passion for the animals and just a passion for high adventure and see stuff and experience stuff I had never seen before. I felt like Marco Polo. <laughs> First booty ceremony in Haiti, I saw I went, damn, I'm like in a regular horror movie here or some shit. It's like, it was just cool, you know? I, yeah. You're seeing stuff you just, you've read about in books and here you go in real life. And you were able so, to, yeah. And you were able to um, use the selling of your reptiles to kind of be able to fund? Um, oh, God, yeah. And, and, and this sort of progressed, too. We, we imported, because I traveled a lot, you know, uh, especially in the early years, and then some in the later years. I've traveled a lot, too, but mostly in the Amazon uh, in the last 10 years. Um, uh, you make contacts with people that, that are like you that, that buy and sell reptiles, and we and the, the, the most contacts I made were people like in Hong Kong and Thailand and that, but most of their market was internally and to the Chinese for food. They were wet markets. Mm. And so you go into a wet market, and back in that time, do you know how much a big head of turtle cost in Hong Kong? How much? $8 U.S. Eight, not 80 8 Wow. $8. That's all. You could get thousands of them. And now, just simply because they lay one big egg and because they've been over-collecting and because of habitat destruction and other stuff, they've become a reasonably rare turtle in many cases. And a baby one here would probably run $3,000, $4,000. And that's in the last 35 years. Think about that. It's a Kalia quadriosolata, the, the, the paradise four-eyed turtle. Yeah. Um, I used to sell them $25 after paying the freight on them and pay for the turtle and still double my money. Huh. The flower back box turtles, QR Galbella Prongs, I used to sell them for $18. It's crazy. In 10 lots, you could get hundreds of them. It's crazy. So, the reason, the, what, what's happened is there's just too many of us. The resources of planet Earth are finite and the consumption by mankind is infinite and certainly that is not a sustainable course for mankind at this point or what I call us talking apes because that's what we really are yeah so um, would you would you look at your work as um, um, as like a, a, obviously breeding and selling but also like somewhat conservation work Oh, God, yeah. Uh, I did a, uh, one, a really good conservation program I did, and you can Google this on YouTube. Just Google Seacology, S-E-A, Ecology, and then San Salvador, Rocky Guana. In 2011, I was asked by Loma Linda University uh, in California if I would conduct a field study of the endemic Sakura Raleigh Raleigh on San Salvador. And we had permits to remove, uh, I think it was 14 of them from nature. And so, uh, and for me to then design and build a grow-out center on Geration Research Center, on Institute, you know, on San Salvador. <clears throat> and, I, and I was allowed, I had the finances to bring somebody with me to help me in the field work and stuff too, because we're in some pretty remote places. So uh, for about two years, I flew to San Salvador about once a month and stayed a week at Geration Research Center. And what we did mostly is we took populations of all of the iguanas uh, roughly about 500 of them total on about six or eight Ks uh, offshore 
uh, on the mainland there are none except in the mangrove lake in the middle of a couple of little caves there, but nothing to speak of. And a couple of the caves offshore, even like Low Key, there, I didn't see anything but big iguanas, and then we didn't see any recruitment, you know, any multiple uh, uh, age classes, you know, lizards. They were all just big adults. Uh, Joe Wasilewski helped me a lot with uh, the uh, the program on San Salvador. We built the, the center for breeding them. And I observed them on Green, I decided to take animals on Green Key because they were already socialized towards people, so they would make the best captives to remove. And I wanted to remove animals that were already compatible with each other. So I went out on Green Key and, and I sat for three to four hours on three different occasions and just watched the lizards all around me. You gotta, you gotta remember, this is a little tiny key and there's about 125 lizards on this key. And most of the lizards in this one area are all, it's the same lizards all the time because the territory of each lizard, because the key is so small, I deducted to be about 12 to 15 square feet. Wow. Think about that. Now, females' territory is smaller and they'll share territories with males. So I was trying to get some that were already sort of compatible. So anyway, I removed. Uh, at first, uh, 2.4 from there and put them on at, in the facility that we had built and planted. Now, I knew that I couldn't teach them coming down there so quick how to hatch any lizards out. So I made the nesting area from a big pile of sand. It's about 100 feet long. This is not a little cage. It's made to house a small group together. And I made a big V-shaped mound of dirt, thinking that when it all settles and packs and the plants grow in, that the lizards that are gravid could pick out the elevation that had the right humidity for the eggs to hatch actually inside of the enclosure, which the babies could not escape out of were that to work. Make long story short, yeah, I uh, I uh, I went out and I picked them out. I put them in, and I got a call. I was God, I went back three weeks, and I got an emergency call that I needed to come back down because. One of the big male iguanas was down uh, too much and he was afraid he was going to die. So I flew down there uh, to Nassau and the only way to get there is you got to fly to Nassau and then get a plane, a shuttle plane from Nassau into San Salvador. It was one, uh, one flight a day, in or out. That's it. Just yeah. it. <clears throat> so uh, I flew down there and immediately I knew what I had not thought about and the fact that these smaller iguanas, Sakura, that live in these a smaller territories and denser groups. If I have just one male, the dominant one's going to pick on the same male all the time. So the way to solve that is to put another male in. Although some people go, oh, you can't do that. Then you'll have two. No, you won't. Because the, the one male then has two other males he has to deal with instead of one. And sure enough, when I put the other one in, the one that wasn't doing well popped back and came back out and it was great. And so I left it at the 3.4, and they were able to, the first year, they nested, and we had one baby hat naturally inside of the enclosure. But really what our biggest achievement was on that project was the fact that up until we had uh, generated all this electricity, I mean uh, publicity, and made the entire Bahamas and the Bahamas National Trust of all this, we wanted all of these places where these lizards live to be in a national park where they couldn't be sold or developed by developers, which the Bahamas is more than capable of doing, no matter what lives on it, uh, if it's money. So, which I probably shouldn't say, but on this podcast, but it's true. 
so anyway, so um, finally, with all the attention, we bumped everything. It was included. It's now all part of the national park system, and we even included Pigeon Creek, which is the only reason humans can live there because that's the place that's the hatchery for all the marine life that supports the 700 people that live on the island. There are no hotels on the island, and there's no restaurants. <laughs> I mean, it's that primitive. It's a real out island in the Bahamas. It's the southwesternmost island in the Bahamas. So that was a real one of my favorite conservation uh, things. But I've helped in the Crocodile Specialist Group and all sorts of stuff and bought stuff and donated stuff. And, you know, I mean, the, the wild animals or the wild reptiles are the ones that count the most of all. So you've done you know, a, every, everyone just do whatever they can do, you know. So you've done a lot of work with Seclura uh, iguanas. Uh, would you say they're a lot more like uh, socially complex and developed than other lizard species? I wouldn't say that they're any more socially com complex than other lizards. I think that I understand their behavior better because. I've spent a lot of time studying them both in nature, you know, and in captivity. And I've bred, uh, I've bred actually five kinds. Uh, uh, uh iguana, uh, a little Cayman or Cayman Brack iguana. Uh, I was the first person to believe blue iguana, Sarcura lewisii, and Sarcura cornuda, and Sarcura ricorda. So I really do love them, and I've seen every single species, and I've seen most of the species in the wild, you know, so... Uh, but they're highly intelligent. I mean, as intelligent really as most birds. I mean, I have five that live in my yard, free roam, my side yard, right now, for years. Do you, do you find there's a that they behave differently in the wild compared to in captivity? No, because we get to see. I, I want you to listen to what I'm saying because I coined this phrase a, a few years ago, and nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. It's only when both the keeper and the kept lose their fear of each other that the magical understanding can begin. Mm. You, you follow how that relates to the whole thing? Yeah. yeah. Is that if the animals are not afraid of you, none, none of the animals here are afraid of you. So I have video after video. I have complete courtship and, 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 uh, and, and copulation videos of crocodile monitors. Or I'm standing beside them in the cage while they're doing it. They don't care. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I do. And I have them with a the sakura too and all kinds of stuff. That's what happens when your animals are not afraid of you. But when you walk in the room and every reptile, as soon as you walk up, looks at you and just freezes, that shit's all terrified of you. Mm -hmm. Because the fact that you're a human being walked up to it, they have been treated badly enough that they're scared, and yes, they are that intelligent. If you treat it well, it changes. People fear crocodile monitors, yet uh, of the six crocodile monitors, I've just, uh, and I've, I've done more than that, but here recently, wild caught, I can hand feed them in like a week by simply giving, keeping them in a humane big cage where they can get up high, feel secure, but if the thing, if it comes up and it feels it has nowhere to run, what do you think it's going to do? You expect it to be happy to see you? <laughs> no. Hell no. Not ever. So, so, um, a lot of, so a lot of people will say that the only way you can get, like, crocodile monitors or other different types of um, lizards, the only way you can get them to be, to be socialized and tame is if you keep, uh, 
raise them from when they're hatchlings? You don't find that to be the case? You you think? No, absolutely not to not to at all. I've mm. got a nine foot crocodile monitor out there that uh, Ray has probably eight and a half foot that was in the jungle in New Guinea uh, less than fifteen months ago. And I can go out there and call it, and he'll come down and see me, and I can pick him up and walk around with him. Mm. I have pictures of it. Do you find it? Do you find? My wife is five feet tall, and she can. Bill, the biggest crocodile monitor of all, he probably weighs 40 pounds. Jesus, he'll crawl up in her lap and bask if she sits down out there. Do you find, um, <laughs> do you find uh, monitor lizards uh, a lot more fun to socialize since they're so intelligent compared to like others? Or well, like... it's not, it, it, they're not all that much more intelligent than other things, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay. to be honest with you, I find that Cyclops are probably every bit as intelligent as any crocodile monitor of any species of rat. Uh, believe it or not, one of the most intelligent squamate reptiles, and when I say squamate reptiles, I mean amphibians, lizards, or snakes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one of the most intelligent are water snakes of the genus Nerodia. Hmm. And really? we don't even appreciate them because they're everywhere, and so we don't care. Interesting. So, kind of going on. Highly intelligent. Also, Thamnopus, and I know Thamnopus because of Manitoba garters and stuff, but uh, it's, a, it's a big deal. I mean, Thamnopus are really intelligent, curious snakes. You do know reptiles play with toys too, right? Right, yeah. When they're not under pressure, I think some of you have probably seen some of my videos. They do. What? Lizards. Uh, and I, snakes. That's crazy. What, I've, I've never heard what? of water snakes being... Um, um, characterized as intelligent. What what makes you say that? That's really interesting. I, you can with with food. They're really motivated by food, and you can train a water snake to target train it to probably mm -hmm. do damn near anything a lizard would. It's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean they're awesome snakes. That they are. Mm -hmm. Um, and they and reptiles definitely recognize their keepers. All of them. Hmm. Every single one of them. Even, even going, there's, a, there's a lot of new stuff out on reptiles that's intelligence that you guys may not or may not even be aware of. Are you aware of the new book called The Secret Life of Reptiles? I haven't heard that. Dr. Dr. Burkhart and the Russian guy and a bunch of other, uh, Mr. Doolin. Uh, it's really interesting and it talks about a lot of some of the stuff that I've talked to you about on here about reptile intelligence. And toy play, you'll find in the book, is, is very well documented in reptiles. I mean, tortoises, they'll push balls, chase balls all around. Uh, our rhino iguanas love to play with, uh, like, cat toys. Really? They know it's not food. They can, I mean, the Jacobson's organ is so powerful. And our, our uh, white throat monitors like to play with those cat toys with the ball and the plastic going round and round. I have video after video of it. And uh, he can take one whip of his tongue within just a few feet of you, and he can tell what aftershave you wore yesterday. So he knows good and well that plastic thing is not food. But what toy does, what toy play does is mimic real life activities. That's what it is with us and them. But I, I think that, that we're such arrogant uh, beings that we think somehow that all of the other animals are somehow so much less intelligent than we are as to not even have feelings uh, or emotions. You know, that's what I've heard people say about reptiles, and nothing could be further from the truth. For sure. Yeah. I, uh, I, 
Something um, that I've noticed the animal behavior, a lot of animal behaviorists, especially, really hold to that that you know animals aren't conscious and they don't feel anything and stuff like that, as opposed to like other groups of scientists. And it's it's pretty crazy because I'm I'm more into like the animal behavior side, so I was like trained up in that mindset, but I've been doing a lot of reading into it, and I find it it doesn't really hold water. It's all changing rapidly now, and I think part of that hanging on to that old thought process is so that your peers won't think that you're some kind of an idiot. Mm. And they and so they won't accuse you of anthropomorphic imagination. Yeah. Look yeah. look, when we went when we went out to Arizona here a couple of years ago and it's done it a couple of times, Hemingway, which is a big rocky guana in the back, he's about thirty five years old. Uh, we had been in Arizona for about uh I don't know, uh it was a book signing. I actually I wrote a book too, uh I co authored a book on the reference book on giant snakes. I was at a book signing event in, in Tucson, and when we came back, we hadn't seen him in a week, and we walked out there. He took one look at us and came running across the yard, open mouth head bobs, and happy sakura head bobs, and stopped and looked at us and do it again. He came and then he rubs on our legs like a cat. His entire right. body. And then and then his hind legs, how they mark their territory, is with the... Uh, the uh, I'm trying to think. The femoral pores, and uh, 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 they give out waxy-like secretions. And the minute that I haven't seen him in a long time, the first thing he'll do, and a lot of times if I'm just standing beside him and he's walking by, he'll come over and drag his hind legs across my feet, marking me. Hmm. Of course, he knows and likes us. I mean, he gets fed. He's been out there for five years now. I mean, he loves us, and he lived here ten years before then. So. I mean, that they bond with people. And I can, I will debate any of this with anybody. Hmm. Because I have video after video after video to prove it. Yeah, um, I remember reading, this is go, ties back to the uh, toy play behavior. I remember reading that back like the uh-huh. 50s and 60s when this whole theory that reptiles had like no toy behavior at all was being developed that they're really using toys that are more suited to use by mammals and reptiles and they just kind of bias the whole thing towards that. Would you say that probably has a large part to do with uh, the now being debunked view of reptile intelligence? It, 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 it does to a degree, I think. Can you, can you repeat the question because that was confusing a little bit with the thought oh. what you said just then. Uh, my apologies. Uh, That's always my fault. Uh, I just remember reading that when the first uh, sort of studies to see if reptiles did have toy behavior, they're using uh, toys and objects that are more suited to being used and played with by mammals instead of reptiles. So I was wondering if that you think that bias had a large part to do with uh, the whole old view that reptiles are unfeeling and unintelligent. Without question, it does, but it goes far beyond that. It goes back to the thing I said before. Do you think that the reptile is going to let you measure anything about it if it's afraid of you in any way? Mm. No. What do you think you'd do if I put a big rhinoceros iguana out in a maze that was wild? It would go nuts because it doesn't know where it is, what's going on, it wants to get the hell out of there. So you can't even get one to even perform any sort of an intelligence test 
unless, number one, it's totally socialized with people and relaxed around people. Second of all, it sees the world different than we do. We see the world primarily through our eyes and our hearing. Squamate reptiles, for instance, see the world almost exclusively through their Jacobson's organ. That's the most powerful single sense organ they have. And they smell, taste with it, and they look at you with their tongue. That's what they do. When they're flicking you and flicking the air, they're trying to decide what's going on around them, what's happening in their environment. And unless you build a test that somehow allows them to utilize these mechanisms that they have, you can, for instance, put a test that was strictly sight test on a squamate reptile that's a tongue flicker. Mm. That would be incredibly dumb. And then you have the problem, what's the optimum temperature? It'd have to be at the absolute optimum temperature it wants to be to perform at its very best because it's teleothermic or ectothermic animal. You understand why? If, if you go out and handle a cold reptile, even that's tame, there's about a 50-50 chance it'll try to bite you. Because it's so cool, it doesn't understand exactly what's going on around it. you understand? Yeah. Right. So what you said is true, but it's a little tiny part of a much bigger picture. Hmm. Point being. Are, there, do you, are you aware of anyone that's trying to... Uh, create more uh, reptile-centered intelligent tests for reptiles? Man, for one, Dr. Burkhardt is one of the authors to the book, The Secret Life of Reptiles. Mm-hmm. He reached out to me about three years ago. I didn't even know who he was at then, to be honest with you. And asked, could he use some of my videos in his teaching seminars? And when I, and I said, sure, because I didn't mind, and I figured he taught school. I didn't know exactly what he did. Uh, then I found out he's Harry Green's professor. I was really impressed that he would reach out to me. And since then, over the last few years, we share a lot of information. And I've just discovered something new, and I don't, I can't say it here because it's not published yet. That's gonna, that's really, it, it's a very big deal in reptiles because it's the first time it's ever been documented. Look, you'll hear about that later on. This is going to be a big deal. Cool. I will look forward to that. What, Same so. Something um, something I've been thinking about, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this. So I recently read this book, um, because me and my friend actually had a, a conversation, and I, I had said um, animals aren't conscious like humans are conscious. And then I was thinking about that, because like I said, I was raised with that animal behaviorist mindset, and I was thinking about it, I was like, well, I don't really know that. I just think that. So I did a lot of reading into it, and I found it's, it's not such a simple question. And so... Um, but one thing that I was reading in a lot of books is they're talking about animals helping other animals. Um, so in that um, empathetic and sympathetic actions and stuff. One thing I noticed is a lot of the animals that they're referring to, like elephants and stuff, are, are herd and pack animals. So you could make the argument that... And, and primates, too. Right, right. A lot of primates and, do that. Right, and so you, can, you, could make the, you could make the argument that they're, that they're not really having an empathetic reaction is that, and that they're just... Um, it's a survivability thing. They know if, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back type of thing. So I was thinking, would there be a way to set up like an experiment to like definitively prove whether an animal is doing that? And I was wondering if you, thoughts on like, what if you did like a monitor lizard, which don't necessarily live in like, you know, social herds and stuff, but are highly sociable animals, and setting up an experiment in a way that would, um, 
see if they actually would help each other out um, in an empathetic respect. Well, I, I'm a, I can answer all of your questions when okay. you learn what I'm going to be talking about here after a while. Actually, Dr. Burkhardt, I sent him the video today, and he asked permission to send it to all of the other uh, folks that contributed to the book because this is a landmark discovery. Mm. Okay. I mean, it is. And, and it was the second time I saw it. I couldn't film it the first time. I wasn't prepared to see it because I didn't think reptiles did stuff like that. And then this time I had a friend with me who was a professor from uh, Georgia, uh, and Tom filmed it. Uh, it's eight, a little over eight minutes long, but it will change everything that we think we know. Mm. And that's Dr. Burkhart, correct? Yeah, correct. Okay, cool. We'll make sure to keep an eye out for that. And, and here, and he agrees with me on my hypothesis on what we're actually seeing. So, or, or so far, and he's getting things to other people that are, uh, you know, I, I'm not really a scientist. I'm more of an academic dabbler kind of. Mm-hmm. You know, I just know a lot about reptiles and I love them, and so I, I do a lot of stuff with it. But, uh, but even for me, this was pretty hard to to to, to, to believe. <laughs> um, but then after now I now I know what I saw is correct and I believe what I saw is exactly I know what I saw is what I saw and what we filmed I also uh, I'm trying to think of the right word to put this in uh, I lost my entire train of thought I guess that's what happens when you get old the ship but uh, <laughs> um, I, can't, I also can't remember what um do you know where the study is going to be published? No, not yet. No, okay. not yet. What we're trying to do is really look at this and kind of break the whole thing apart. Okay. It's, it's interesting stuff. It really is. It's um, I've just been kind of like like just wild all day, you know. But I knew he took the video, but I never looked at the video, and neither did he. And then we kind of forgot about it, and then the subject came up. And so uh, I wrote a, um, uh, I contacted uh, Dr. Burkhart and wrote him, uh, texted him some uh, uh, story of what happened and, and sent him the video. And, and, and man, it, it, it's. Blow your socks off? <laughs> yeah, did mine. <laughs> well, now um, I can't wait for that study to come out. I don't even wear socks. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that with herpetologists, a lot of us go barefoot. I go barefoot everywhere I go. Um, I, I do a lot. I wear I wear flip flops in the Amazon jungle at night, you know, on, on hikes and stuff. That's what uh, that's what Jim Harrison. I worked at the Kentucky Reptile Zoo. He said you'd go in the herp and in the Amazon and, and whatnot, just barefoot and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, what are your thoughts on all the laws? Um, in Florida in regards to like iguanas, Burmese pythons, tegus and all that stuff it, 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 it's inevitable and it's only going to get worse and we have no one to blame but ourselves mm. would you say, so I, I hear this a lot too that it's more of the generation of the you know 70s and 80s fault as opposed to the current generation or would you say we're just well, I think it's all of our fault uh, mm. old and young alike it's not one or the other it's all of us I mean we all have done things that we shouldn't do and, and, and to be honest with you though even the things 
like once in a while somebody will have a venomous snake get out in Florida or someplace else. That's a huge deal. All right, a zoo, the same year that, that two cobras got loose in Florida, two zoos in the U.S. lost venomous snakes, which they got back, just like they got found the ones in Florida. Yet, they want to ban all private people, even though it only happened two times, right? Yeah. And then the zoos, just it's just sort of like part of having a zoo. Hmm. You know, so it's part of our personal freedoms to do certain things, too. But certainly the private sector needs to clean up its act a lot. Number one, you need to stop keeping giant snakes in vision cages and pull out racks. Period. Unless they're juveniles, small ones, real small. And keep anacondas or any kind of anectes of any kind, you need to provide an adequate water source that the entire animal can get in. And, and a lot of it needs to be looked at like that. And a lot of the the big breeding centers anymore are more like, they remind me of like reptile puppy mills almost. And that hurts the hobby a lot too. That's a huge problem. It's a big problem. But make no mistake, the biggest problem of all is when you let a potentially dangerous animal escape your facility in some way. There's nothing, I don't think, any worse than that. Um, something that and it's like, just going to happen more. I mean, I think it'll become more restrictive. Yeah. Well, and something that I like about like your videos is co compared to like a lot of people. Like a lot of people nowadays like to put videos of snakes and lizards biting them and striking and all this stuff. And I like how a lot of what you're showing is, you know, them being social and how, uh, you know, great they can be. Honestly. But, well, they don't bite and try to do that all the time. The only time they do that is when they're scared shitless. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a venomous snake is not going to run out of the bushes and bite you. It's scared of you. That's the reason it bites you in the first place. And, the, and when I used to get reptile shows when I was young, I was an alligator wrestler and uh, rattlesnake, mocha, and cobra shows and all of that. And if you went to one of my... Now, I gave stellar information that was known at the time on alligators and rattlesnakes. But by God, if you went... If you were afraid of eastern diamondback rattlesnakes or alligators before my show even though I gave you great information how they really are not even a threat to us at all and all that sort of stuff, I would try to make them kill me because you got bigger tips and the management wanted and everything. And when I get through with the show, I am sure the people that came to the show were more afraid of them after my show than before. <laughs> Regardless of what I said because of what I made those poor animals do. And I feel bad about that then and I feel bad about that now and we don't do that stuff here ever. Because that's not how they actually are. They're only like that when they're under high duress and stress and fear. I don't want to keep prisoners. I want to keep friends. I don't want, you know, you know what I mean? I just yeah. don't. Something I've heard too, um, well, actually, I heard people talking about this because they're debating it. Because they were talking about the people that show like reptiles acting crazy and then compared to the people that just don't socialize. And they were saying, on the one hand, when you show the reptiles getting crazy, you get a lot more people watching, um, watching it and paying attention. Um, but it puts a negative spin on it. And so they were saying maybe there's a balance between, sh you know, showing that to get the viewers and then putting the right information. Would you say there's a balance, or? 
I don't think that there's any sort of a balance that would please everybody. I think you need to find a balance that would please yourself. Mm. Okay. So, um, besides the Sakuras and the uh, crocodile monitors, uh, what are some other reptiles that you're currently keeping and working with? That, that we're breeding just right now? Yeah. Like we keep here? Okay, I'll start with, uh, let's go with boas. Uh, uh, Peruvian red tails, and she's grabbing now. She may have babies today or tomorrow even. Uh, big Colombian boa that's, uh, she's 20 years old, Lucy is, and she's, she's probably pushing 12 feet long now, and she's gravid also. We have a pair. Uh, I have Jamaican boas, uh, just had 36 babies, Chilobothrus simplavus. I have forage boas, we just had two litters of those, Chilobothrus fordi, well, it's a boa, a small boa that's endemic to Hispaniola. We get about three feet long, about a meter long. Uh, I have Chilobothrus uh, inernatus, uh, no babies yet, but we will have them soon. Uh, Chilobothrus striatus, which is Dominican red mountain boas, beautiful boa from Hispaniola, and they will have babies too, but not yet. Uh, we've already produced one litter of Madagascan tree boas, uh, a litter, a clutch of diamond pythons we hatched out in August, July. Uh, let me think. Uh, uh, really good uh, hybrid Sarcoma lewisii. They look like they look pure almost. They're so they're so nice and blue. And, and I should know because I bred the first ones of those. I used to. I had was the last private person with pure ones. Uh, then, uh, let me think here, uh, snake-neck turtle, Chelodonna timorensis, also Ganelan snake-neck turtle, Chelodonna ganelani, uh, Gorzugi sliders, uh, on the Rio Grande sliders, which are Gorzugi sliders, same thing, um, uh, Burmese star tortoises, Burmese mountain tortoises, Manuria ferii, uh, I'm missing something. I noticed you post a lot. Cuban boa. Hmm. Uh, already had babies from her. Uh, nine gigantic big babies. Yeah, those are big snakes. Babies as big as a baby anaconda. Uh, let me think what else here. Oh, blue tree monitors. Moranus macrae. Nice. Uh, crocodile, crocodile monitors. We got more. We'll hatch more croc monitors in February, too. Uh, the eggs have been incubating a few months ago. And uh, I don't have eggs yet, but I'll bet you money in, 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 in 30 to 60 days, we will have yellow tree monitor eggs, Varanus risingerii. We will have uh, Varanus uh, uh, prasinus eggs, a green tree monitor. We will have more blue tree monitor eggs from the same parents. And we will have black tree monitor eggs, Varanus becquerae. Uh, but I have I haven't had those quite a year yet. It takes a little bit to keep them in. Got to have them a year first. And uh, next year we'll probably have main shad vipers. They've been in the new habitat long enough now. Yeah. And let me think. What well, I think. Let me think a minute here. Post. It's all kinds of stuff. Oh, redfoot tortoises. We had some. I don't know. Thirty redfoot tortoises. Uh, we had some gopher tortoise and just the. There are, there's three or four of them in the backyard that the Florida Wildlife Commission dropped off here. 
Well, one of them's been there for 15 years with people selling them off Craigslist and stuff. And apparently they bred, and we found the eggs, thought it was red, but it had been hashing some gopher tortoise. Uh, the native tortoise to Florida. They're not ours, I mean, they belong to the state. Yeah. They live here right now, anyway. Uh, I, I think that might be it. I don't have near as much stuff as I used to have either in the species and that, but I mean, I bred in the past 10 species of crocodilians when I had the crocodile farm I lost, you know. But I like all of them. Yeah, I noticed you. Uh, I, like some I like some better than others. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. I oh, noticed. Rhino iguana. I forgot rhino iguanas too. Oh, nice. Um, I noticed you post a lot about like uh, your Mangshan vipers. So, what in particular drew you to that species? Well, when it was discovered, it wasn't even known science. I think to two thousand and two or three. And when I saw this this bright green, beautiful ass viper that I didn't know existed, that was they were calling it the Chinese bushmaster that gets eight feet long. And I thought, well, I got to have some of those. And so I started checking with my contacts in Hong Kong, and I found a guy with some, and I bought uh, 10 pairs. And then when I got them, I loved them. I, I sold them except for uh, two, which I kept. One of them I still have today. That's from 2008. Her name's Mei Mei. The big female man, it's about seven and a half or eight feet long. She's 13 years old this year. Still acts like a young snake, too. But anyway, he, um, uh, the next shipment I got from them, I bought 25 pairs of Mike Shen Vipers. And I kept another pair or so back. And then I uh, I got both kinds of uh, Zemiops, both the blackhead and the orangehead. Zemiops Vi, and I forget what the other species is. But I had never had uh, the blackhead ones before. And then uh, they sent... Uh, Protobopropsis yangchengensis, which is a pit viper, the only ones I've ever seen, and I think the only ones that have ever come into the U.S. And I had uh, Protobopropsis cornuda, uh, albino banded crates, uh, just all, oh, God, it was an amazing ship of cool stuff. And I kept them, and I worked towards breeding them, and then I had mishaps and lost three. And so I had my one adult maymay, which I still have, and at that point, they're protected and there's no more coming in. And then I find uh, a medium-sized pair for sale and a younger pair for sale. I bought those and then I had to raise those up for four or five years. And then I built the new big facility, but I bet money we have bet, uh, eggs next year. We got breeding this year with no eggs, but they'd only been in it this year six months when, it was, when they were breeding. It takes about a year to kick in once you move them. So, yeah. Of, um, between snakes, lizards, crocodilians, turtles, what's your favorite? And then of that group, which which is your favorite, if you can decide? <laughs> I, I like them all, and crocodilians, I probably like alligators the best. And next, probably American crocodiles, and then uh, 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 Cuban crocodiles. I used to breed hundreds of Cuban crocodiles. Uh, you know, lizards, I probably like Sakura for sure, snakes, Jamaican boas, turtles and tortoises, probably radiated tortoises, in terms of, you know, I used to, I bred so many of those in years past, uh, what else? What are the kind of reptiles? Oh, I've never had a tour 
So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be really cool. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever made a trip over to New Zealand to see him? No, I've been to Australia, but not New Zealand. No? Do you want to, or... I've, I've seen two Ataras. Well, right. I mean, I would like to go, but at this point, I'm probably not going to go, you know. I got you. Yeah. It's a long way, and I'm not as interested in going there as I am looking at the stuff I'm doing here. That's um, See, so you, you said most of the traveling that you do nowadays is to the Amazon? Well, up until COVID hit, we I was uh, a guide for Green Tracks. Uh, the other guys was Dante Finalio. You probably know who he is. The guy that wrote the book Life in the Dark. And like he's like the U.S. sort of like uh, David Attenborough and Bill Lamar, who's a real famous herpetologist, book writer. So the three of us were the guides, and <clears throat> we had a uh, they uh, organized a big uh, uh, they call it Crutchfield uh, 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 Biodiversity Expedition into uh, Loretta, Peru which is upriver towards Ecuador, and we stayed, the longest I ever stayed was three weeks, and the shortest is about 10 days. And we did it for four or five years straight, and then COVID, and then our infrastructures, we're not sure what we're gonna do. I was talking to uh, Jim Harrison, and he said, um, he, he hitchhiked over to the Amazon to go herping, um, when he was like 18 or something, and he said he went herping all throughout the Amazon, didn't really find anything, but then when he'd go into the city, he'd find all sorts of snakes all around the trash cans. Did you find oh, that? Oh, we, we find lots of stuff in the jungle. You really? me? I've actually field collected uh, uh, two bushmasters there hmm. in, in, in the wild. Uh, and every expedition, we catalog usually between 120 and 150 different species of just reptiles. It's crazy. I mean, we get things like emerald corallus, emerald tree boas. Amazon tree boils, all kinds of collarbone snakes, most of which most people couldn't even identify. You know, uh, Bill's like a, probably the world's greatest uh, neotropical uh, herpetologist in terms of uh, really understanding the broad overview of uh, you know South American her her herps for sure. Boy, just poison arrow frogs, we might find twenty kinds. Huh? You know, just alone. But oh, yeah. I, I didn't find that the case. I've caught, I've caught a few things in Iquitos. Uh The only thing that came to mind in Quitos, and we found two of them, is getting ready to go on the boat to go up river. Because it's about a day and a half by fast boat up river where we go. Where there's not even any electricity within a day of where we are. So we, uh, uh, I, as we're walking in in the gutter on the road, we collected uh, two Ampis bina polyginosa, uh, which is a a squamate reptile, it's a worm lizard. Hmm. If you Google it, it's really cool. It's a thing that gets about 15 or 18 inches long, about maybe uh, almost as big around as your thumb, or a really fat one. I recently moved to Florida and I found a blind snake for the first time. It was, yeah, that's the type of are pretty common. Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> they're in the pot, yeah, they're in the pots everywhere. If you look in the pots with plants, oh, really? Like in the soil, yeah, you find a lot. Oh, that's cool. I thought it was really cool, but... <laughs> well, it, it is really cool. Yeah, yeah. I've never found one before. Right, yeah. It's it's pretty cool, though. But, um... Yeah. I was talking to a Brazilian, though, um, that I met at the Kentucky Reptiles. I was giving him a tour. And he said it was actually really funny because he, um... He says he goes in the Amazon forest all the time, barefoot, not a problem. But he said... He's telling me, he's like, yeah, but I moved to the U.S. and 
I'm terrified of going into the woods and stuff. You know, I always wear chaps and stuff because I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to see a snake and stuff. He said in his, like, all of his years being in the Amazon, he never saw a snake, which, like, blew, flew. <laughs> you know, every single expedition that I have ever made to Peru, I've been on five of them. Uh, there has never been one that we haven't seen three or more fertilizers, both of say trunks, mm. big landscapes. The last one we went on, we also found uh, one of those uh, uh, uh it's a turquoise blue one almost. Uh, Sparagonis is a subspecies from Suriname, but this is not what this is. Uh, it's an arboreal one too. Uh, it's, uh... Anyway, we find venomous snakes. We find coral snakes, both uh, uh, the uh, diastinana. We find the aquatic coral snakes. We find two or three of those every single trip. I mean, they're common. I mean, just the little creeks and, and ditches and everything happen. I mean, we call it anacondas, boa constrictors, Peruvian red tails. We catch like anywhere up to one trip, I think, we caught six or eight of them. So we find plenty of snakes in the jungle, but we go out at night which, with lights actually looking for them. Uh, yeah, I see. You know that's what I mean? So that's different. If right. you go out in the daytime in the jungle, you might not see many snakes. If you go out at nighttime in the jungle, you're probably going to see snakes. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's for funny. Sure. That's something I've noticed because uh, I've really only been herping in the southeast until recently mm -hmm. I went out west. and. Right. Um, I got used to the, because I've been doing it my whole life, I got used to knowing what times they're most active and stuff and doing that. And then when I went out uh, west, um, like the first day I went looking during the time that I, is, I'm normally successful back in the southeast and I couldn't find anything. I was out there for four hours, couldn't figure out why I couldn't find anything. I was talking to a guy that's, you know, actually lives out there and he's like, yeah, you got to go out at these times to find them and stuff. So it's, it's pretty cool how... Each place is kind of has its own, like, you got to know yeah. the times and stuff. You do. But definitely at night in the Amazon, just from what I've seen, it, there's a lot to be found there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know what that, that, that pit viper is. It's a, uh, uh, a Bothriopsis malineatus, oh. you know, which is an arboreal pit viper. Uh, uh, it, well, it's bigger than an eyelash viper in length, not quite as big around it and almost turquoise blue on top. We caught a beautiful one about 12 feet up in a tree the last trip we made. So we get, we, we find quite a lot of venomous, there's a lot of venomous snakes in the rainforest. Also too, if you shine on the ground, if anytime, anywhere in Loretta, part of Peru, where we are, do you know what a Brazilian wandering spider is? Those yeah. Yeah. ones? Yeah. There are thousands of them there. That's crazy. If you stop, they'll even run over your foot, but the only way you're going to get bit by one is if you press down on it. Mm. Catch it, you know what I mean. It's not gonna like run up and bite you, or crawl on you and bite you. So, yeah, so I mean, literally you... they're everywhere. They're common, real common. What's your technique in um, catching like venomous snakes that are like twelve feet in the uh, in the trees and stuff? Well, I mean, it depends on the kind of venomous snake, how big it mm. was, and the species, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, if it's fertilized, if you just bump the tree, it probably just jump right out. You know, and you want to get way back so it doesn't accidentally hit anybody, and then you can go over and catch it. 
if it's a gig, if it's pit viper, what we did is cut a long pole and take the pole without scaring the snake and hook it up underneath the coil, which doesn't disturb them, and just pick it up, draped off the limb, out of the way of the tree, and bring the pole down, and then look at it, you know, while it's on the end of the pole, or take it back and, you know, see if you can pose it for photographs or whatever you want to do. So a lot of it depends. I once caught a Suriname coral snake. That's the first one I ever saw, and I was crossing a little bridge about three or four feet up, and I looked down, and I just, I saw it in the water right there, like about a three-foot, four-foot one. I just jumped in the water and grabbed it, you know, and threw it out, and then I sunk up to my waist and muck and stuff, too, and people helped pull me out, and then I caught it and put it in the bag, and we took it back and photographed it. So a lot of it depends on what kind of snake it is. Bushmasters, the two Bushmasters just walk up and uh, uh, have the, the bag laid down, propped up, or else on one of those, uh, uh, use bagging techniques with one of those on the hoop, you know, and just pick it up and put it in the bag. Bushmasters don't normally even try to buy it. Hmm. Fertile ants, that's another matter, though. My pups ain't talking well. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so, Matt, do you have any other questions? Um, no, I think, um, I think I've asked all the questions. Is there anything else you'd like us to know? Not that I can think of, except that I want you to think that reptiles understand for sure that they're more intelligent than what we think. Yeah, that's really yeah, exciting. They deserve, to they deserve a lot better than what they get for the most part, too. Yeah. And, and I am consistently trying to improve things here and downsize to where, and, and as you've probably seen from my enclosures, we, we gave them a lot of space. Even back though, I'm going to tell you the truth, in the 1970s, we all kept, a few of us kept giant snakes in, including me, Burmese pythons, two of them, Sylvia and Cynthia, about, I don't know, 14 or 15 feet long, both females. And when they got real big, I didn't have anywhere to put them, so I put them in an extra bedroom on my house, loose in the bedroom with floor cover and, and newspapers and big logs and water. And I had to have help to carry the plastic tub out because it was big enough for them to get in. That went over like a lead balloon. My wife didn't like it, neither did I. And then I built a cage outside for them, 16 feet long by 5 feet wide by uh, 5 feet high. And uh, you know what? That was like 40 years ago. So we didn't know much about how to keep giant snakes back then, but we figured giant snakes needed giant cages. And I have no idea what happened to the uh, herpetoculture when we think, what right do we have to put a magnificent four or five meter retic in an eight foot by four foot pull out tub? Yeah. Please. It really is, it's cruel, it's not right. And somebody what? has to speak out for the, for the snakes. Yeah. And it, like me or love me, that would be me because you're not going to silence my voice on the truth. Yeah, well, and one thing I've heard about that, one thing I've heard about that too is, um, uh, well, people will say, well, snakes don't need a lot of room; they don't need a lot of space, so it's okay. That's not true. Yeah, okay. That's not true. Mm. I have my cage for the red-tailed boas out there, the Peruvians, uh, and for the well, the other one's bigger, but for the Peruvians, it is uh, twelve feet by probably nine feet by six feet tall with big trees in it. And the Peruvian's nine and a half feet long and sits at the top of the tree all the time in the sun. 
Are you kidding me? I once saw a 14-foot anaconda in a tree 50 feet off the ground over the river. Please. Well, and, and no, the that's not true. Well, John, and a, John Ritz can climb a palm tree by just wrapping around it and going straight up. And the difference Please. between you and just like a casual keeper is that you know you can actually tell the difference between their temperaments and it, between keeping them in a smaller cage and a larger cage where you can actually yeah, see Yeah, I mean, the better you treat them, the more better results you get keeping your reptiles uh, in, 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 a, in a really humane, better way benefits both the keeper and the kept. Yep. Benefits the keeper just as much as it does the animals. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a... Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of... One, one of the downsides to herpetology becoming bigger is... I think there's a lot of people that keep that don't know how to read snakes or lizards and, and their behaviors right. and what they're thinking. And I saw stuff. I'm gonna get bit by the a retic that was in an aquarium, and I knew that that retic was gonna bite the first person that opened the top. The minute that they started messing with it, it started to exhibit feeding behavior, mm-hmm. and I thought she's not actually gonna stick her arm in there, is she? This was about a 15 foot retic, and it bit the living crap out of her, wrapped her arm up and she's trying to get the coil off of her neck and if she'd been by herself a snake like that will kill her when I used to have that 20 foot I had a 6 meter long retic here a legitimately 6 meter long a lot of people say they are and they're not and this was she was getting older to like 18 years old she's still alive by the way too today and even bigger and that was the single most dangerous reptile we have here even though I have king cobras here and stuff so yeah, well, I, I remember one time I, um, or sometimes I'll be, I have, I have a Mojave ball python, and, you know, 99% of the time, great to handle and stuff, but sometimes, you know, she's not in, she doesn't want to be, and I'll... The wild animal, I mean. Right, yeah, and my friends will come over, and they'll be like, oh, can I can I hold your snake? And I'll be like, yeah, and I'll go, and I'll look at it, and I can tell she's not going to want to be handled, and so I'll say, no, she doesn't want to be handled. Yeah. Like, how, how can you tell? And I'll be like, and... It, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's hard to describe to people that don't know how to read like reptiles and stuff. How well, you understand their language because you work with it for so long. It's like it's like me. I understand the behavior of all of these reptiles because I've I've actually had so many different kinds. Because you know I bought and sold all kinds of them. I had no intention of keeping myself to breed at all. But I learned a lot about them by just buying and selling them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean until recently, I never tried to keep crop monitors very long. And hell, in three years of, of beginning to keep them, I'm already reproducing them. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, uh, I just never tried them before. That's but I also have I also research the animals in nature. That's what I do probably more than anything else. If, if I want to breed something like the main vipers, I pour over every scientific paper, every journal, everything that's been written about main vipers and try to, to somehow work it in to the program we have here, because I'm going to breed those damn things. That's the hardest. That's the hardest thing I've ever tried to breed, and I still have not been successful. Yeah. But next year. The um, <sighs> one th- one thing I noticed is um, I like to read, and I've read a ton of books about reptiles and stuff. And my mom never liked me, wanted me to have reptiles growing up, so I'd always catch wild yeah, ones. Yeah keep them for like a week few weeks maybe or so just to walk them and then let them go and and uh she was somewhat okay with that but i i found that i learned a lot more and a lot more accurate information just by watching 
them behave and stuff than I would in like books and stuff. And that I, that like, is what I do a lot of. I watch here all the time because mm-hmm. I'm retired basically, and literally I look at reptiles, observe them all day long, and, and because mine are not afraid of you, remember they they will let me see exactly. stuff that you could never. Like I've got all of the behavior, the, the sexual reproductive behavior of crocodile monitors, all filmed and cataloged. Hmm. The females do this weird circling thing. I published some of them or posted them. And it's amazing stuff. We found out crocodile monitors like fruit. Like so everybody's fruit? always, they love fruit, yeah. Mm-hmm. So everybody always wondered what a crocodile monitor would have teeth like that. And also I discovered that if you threw one out of a tree, you know, they glide like Draco, they'll flatten out. A croc monitor will flatten out probably three, almost 30 inches wide and catch the wind and glide. Tree monitors, all the tree monitors do it better, almost as good as the Draco. Just to let you know, they I can. never heard of that. That's, that crazy. A, so, that's so, amazing. No, nobody knows it yet. That's probably another Papagoshin setting thing, but that's uh, <laughs> that, that's not the other thing I'm talking about. But that's yeah, that's common knowledge. What I said among us, a lot of us anyway. But but in any event, if you look at their teeth, why would an animal glide in a tree? And have teeth like that. It lives in New Guinea, and the only arboreal mammals I remember, you're on the other side of Wallace's line, so all you have is Australian stuff, and, and the only thing you have that live in trees are tree kangaroos and cuscus, and neither one of them are that common. And how the hell is it going to catch a bird? You know what I think they are? Fruit bat specialists. But they could jump out of a tree, the bat took off, they hit the bat with those teeth, the bat's going down, they can glide down, and then just remember, they can glide. So it's not like it's going to fall out of the tree when it when it does that. It's going to glide down, and then it can go. And I think that's what they do, and they love pigs too. Hmm. So, and when you find these big fruit bat concentrations in Southeast Asia, it's always on fig trees that have fruit, and there might be five hundred there. So that just stands to reason to me. I bet you, I bet you that that's right. That kind of makes sense compared to like. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a guess, but. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, animals that are known for um, snagging birds out of trees, mm-hmm. or, or, or like in midair and stuff, like while they're yeah. flying, um, they'll have teeth like Corallus and those. Marillas. Right. Yeah. So that yeah, that sounds right. right to me, at least. All right. Well, I'm probably going to have to take off here in a second, but yeah, yeah. No. Is that, is that good? Uh, yeah. Thank yeah. you. This was amazing. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been a great honor. I've enjoyed it myself, and. Uh, uh, glad talking with you guys, and you guys have a great night. You, yeah, too. you too. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Okay, I'm not sure I had.